from across the globe, from the center of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aero Gordon. Uh, thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Um, let me start with two requests. In Sydney, uh, my hometown, it's just after 3 a.m. in the morning. So if I nod off, would somebody please give me a nudge? Uh, secondly, uh, standard issue for an aviation safety regulator as part of our personal protective equipment is a Kevlar vest. Uh, but due to baggage restrictions, I didn't bring that with me, so please be kind. Let me be more serious. Um, firstly, thank you, Gordon, and uh, the Royal Aeronautical Society for this opportunity to present the 2015 uh, Captain Ray Jones Memorial Lecture. Uh, I read with significant interest um, Captain Jones's uh, biography uh, and so I'm therefore uh, greatly honoured to be able to pay tribute to him and to acknowledge his pioneering work that he achieved with both the society uh, and also the airline simulator training sector during his career with BOAC and British Airways. So as I mentioned, I am a regulator. Uh, so tonight I will be giving the discussion or the, the lecture from a regulator's perspective. Um, what I'd like to do in terms of linking to the theme that we've seen today uh, at the International Flight Training Conference, uh, which was flight crew instruction, selection skills and supply, I'd like to share with you tonight CASA's philosophy in relation to pilot training and pilot testing. Um, I'd like to uh, explain a significant safety intervention or safety initiative that we ran um, commencing in 2007. Uh, it involved both examiners and instructors, but tonight I'll touch on the instructor theme. And secondly, in recognition um, that Captain Jones was a simulator pioneer, I'll also finish with a short case study on what we've done as a regulator to regulate the use of flight simulation devices um, to improve the safety and quality of training. However, before I do that, let me just give a little bit of context in terms of the Australian aviation industry uh, that we oversight. In addition to the figures that you see on the screen, in 2014 we had a further 7,400 aircraft on our sports aviation register, so they are not VH registered aircraft, they have numbers on them instead of VH, so they're the ultralights basically. There were 57.6 million passengers carried domestically and a further 31.4 million passengers carried on international flights out of Australia. Our Civil Aviation Act of 1988 tells us um, what we are required to do as the Federal Aviation Safety Regulator. Australia is a commonwealth. Uh, we do have um, states and territories, uh, but we are the federal regulator. Each state and territory does not have um, their own regulator, so we look after it for the entire commonwealth. So Section 3A um, of our Act says that uh, we are to maintain enhance and promote aviation safety with a particular emphasis on preventing accidents and incidents. Well, I guess that makes sense. That's what pretty much every aviation safety regulator, I guess, would have 
um, as their purpose. The Act um, goes on and tells us that when we perform our functions and exercise our powers, we must regard the safety of air navigation as the most important consideration. Um, Parliament uh, and the, the then Minister in his second reading to Parliament made it clear that we're not a social regulator, we're not an economic regulator, we're a safety regulator. We are, of course, required to have consideration to all of those other elements when making our decisions, uh, but if, uh, if, a, if a decision um, came uh, down to being an economic decision or a safety decision, we must um, err on the side of safety. So let me just uh, now look at what we consider um, is our pilot training and checking continuum. We see this uh, as being holistic. It doesn't stop when a pilot graduates from their flight school. Uh, it continues throughout their entire career, whether they happen to be a private pilot flying for recreational or business purposes or going through the standard career path that we see in Australia, which has a significant general aviation industry. So usually we see a pilot graduate, they may well do time as an instructor, they then may move into a regional or a small charter operator, uh, and then eventually uh, most will have that, um, that glint in their eye of uh, flying the aircraft on the far right of the screen for our flag carrier. Now, a presentation by an instructor, or in my case, a former instructor, wouldn't be complete without a graph. Now, this isn't the lift-drag ratio uh, or anything like that. Um, this is what I call my pilot standards graph. Uh, let me explain how it works. So on the x-axis um, represents qualifications, and on the y-axis is a standard. So what's our job as a regulator? Our job as a regulator is to set the minimum standard. That minimum standard in terms of pilot qualifications is clearly set out in our legislation. We, we have a Part 61, uh, equivalent to your Part FCL. Um, we put it into our Manual of Standards. Uh, we further clarify it in our Flight Examiner Handbook and on our flight test forms. So that pass-fail standard, which is quite binary, um, is quite clearly defined. But is that enough? We also have what I call the encourage standard. And encourage for a particular purpose, because at paragraph 2A in section 9 of our Act, I did tell you I was a regulator, we have a safety-related function of encouraging a greater acceptance by the aviation industry of its obligation to maintain high standards of aviation safety. So why is that important? Well, I think that the problem with the minimum standard is that there's the potential for some operators to see this as the maximum standard. And the difficulty or the danger, I'm sure you can see with that approach, is that pilots might not be properly equipped to deal with an adverse situation. So that on a bad day, 
they might actually drop below that minimum acceptable standard. And the outcome is tragically most likely fatal. So we all have heard of Professor James Reason. He's rightly famous for his Swiss cheese model, the accident causation model. But he also espouses another concept, that of latent pathogens. I'm not sure if you've read any of his literature on latent pathogens. Well, I'm probably going to do a terrible job, but let me paraphrase it and put it into the context or concept of what I consider it means in relation to pilots and pilot um, standards. If a pilot isn't properly trained or during a test is let slip through with a bit of a nudge, nudge, wink, wink, she'll be right, I saw you fly okay yesterday, there's the potential for a pathogen to be implanted into that pilot. Now, that'll be a latent pathogen. It may remain dormant throughout that pilot's entire career. Of course, it might become active just at the time when they truly need to rely on that bit of skill, knowledge or attitude that they may have missed out on. So, the benefit of the encouraged standard is what I call uh, the ability to have spare capacity and capability or additional resilience. And it was interesting in listening to some of the presentations today, resilience came up multiple times. So let me link it back to Reason's latent pathogen model or theory. In my view, resilience is the antidote to that pathogen. The other way to think of it is fuel reserves. Our fuel reserve, of course, is that bit of green bit between the red and the green line. We don't plan to use it, do we? Uh, but certainly in my career flying small aircraft, there have been quite a few charters and some Navexes that I've been pretty happy that I've had some fuel reserves that I could rely on um, to get me back to base. The other reason I think encourage standard is important is because it does help uh, dealing with those adverse situations, the emergencies and now, um, I think it was Nassim Taleb that um, coined the black swan theory and I know we have an expert on black swans in this room. Coming from Australia, I suspect I can claim um, to be somewhat of an expert on black swans too, given that that's where they were found. Um, we know that black swan events are those high-profile, hard-to-predict, unexpected events that have an extreme impact, yet are rationalised post hoc via retrospective predictability. Um, you may be familiar with Qantas QF32 um, out of Singapore in November 2010, something that I suspect would classify as a black swan event. So let me um, move uh, from a graph to a model. And this is my model of the three-legged stool model of pilot competency. 
So let's imagine the pilot is this three-legged stool. We know that for a stool to be functional, it has to have at least three legs, yeah? We take one of those legs away, the stool is unstable, it's not functional, it will fall over. So what do the legs of this stool represent? The first is competency. That's the foundation. Uh, competency has two forms of definition. The first definition I'm, I'm going to give you is that that you'd find in a dictionary. There is a second definition of competency from the vocational education and training sector, which I'll explore a little later on. So competency is defined as the quality of being adequately or well qualified physically and mentally. So the first I think is competency. The second is proficiency. And proficiencies are um, defined as the skillfulness in the command of fundamentals deriving from practice and familiarity. So a pilot must remain proficient in their core competencies. And we have a system that assesses proficiency, doesn't it? So a pilot's competency is assessed uh, at initial licence or, or rating issue and continuously checked during operator proficiency checks or instrument proficiency checks, whatever it happens to be. So the third and final leg then, in my view, is experience. Now experience is defined as the accumulation of knowledge or skill that results from direct participation in events or activities. Now, for those of you in the room that may have done some research into the, uh, the educational science, the model of competency-based training, you'll know that um, there are CBT purists that will say that experience means nothing. In some cases, uh, that may or may not be true. I disagree. I think experience is one of those legs of the stool. But there's a caveat. It's got to be the right experience. We've all heard the story, is it 5,000 hours, is it, is it the same hour 5,000 times? Or is it 5,000 hours of genuine, diverse experience? Um, in the training context, um, particularly if we look at Annex 1, as a minimum, what that, um, those hours for qualification gives us is at least rate of exposure. Uh, which we think is important um, to at least pick up uh, the competency. So in reality, in my view, the experience, whether it's in training or testing or on the line or out instructing or flying charter for, or, or doing an emergency evacuation for the Royal Flying Doctor Service, it's about making sure it is the right experience. Now, if you look at the three legs of that stool, competency, proficiency and experience, you'll see that there are two um, critical players in that, and that is the instructor and the examiner cohort. So let me wind the clock back in the Australian context to 2004 uh, and what became the driver for CASA's re-engagement with the flight training sector. We had stepped away from the flying training sector. We had devolved and delegated 
flight testing uh, and, um, and other functions to industry. Uh, our ATSB, the Australian Transport Safety um, Bureau, released a seminal study that looked at the 10-year fatal accident rate within our general aviation sector. And whilst that um, review showed a very pleasing downward trend and uh, they did a comparison internationally, which put us within the top three or four um, countries uh, in the world, uh, it did show that 43% um, of fatal accidents in general aviation were attributed to loss of control in flight. This is 2004, just remember that date. It's pretty topical now, isn't it? But this is 2004 in the Australian context. Um, why is that important? Well, in Australia it's significant because our career path, as I showed in that earlier slide, is that the majority of the pilots flying our heavy metal or our regional um, uh, carriers come from general aviation. We have a small military. Uh, the days of a big military are, are well and truly gone in Australia. So the ability to recruit um, ex-Royal Australian Air Force pilots um, for our operators um, uh, is, is very small now. So this was pretty significant for us. Let me share this graph. I hesitate to say this, so I'm going to touch wood, but Australia hasn't had a fatal high capacity RPT accident since 1969. But, and I heard this in one of our final presentations today, the past is no guarantee of the future. Uh, Professors Reason and Hudson talk about this chronic unease that we must all have. And with statistics like that, our unease metre is hard right on the chronic scale. So if we saw that issue happening in GA and we know our pipeline, our career pathway for pilots in Australia is that they, the nursery is general aviation, it was clear that we needed to do something about it. So 2004, remember the date? That was our GA loss of control in flight problem. Let me fast forward to 2009. Uh, 2009 was not a good year internationally, was it? Uh, let's see, in February, uh, Colgan Air, crashed at Buffalo, New York, killing 51 people. One of those, of course, was the resident of the house that it crashed into. We know that that was a watershed accident. We've talked about it today, and there's been plenty of other international uh, conferences that have talked about it. Uh, heightened focus on pilot competency training and flight crew fatigue. But just two weeks later, in Amsterdam, uh, Turkish Airlines 737 uh, crashed on final approach. Nine passengers and crew killed. All three pilots uh, were killed. And then less than four months after that, Air France 447 uh, in the Atlantic with 228 souls lost. 
So, what was the common theme of those accidents? We know comes down to, uh, in a lot of, uh, in those cases, um, what a crusty old ATSB accident investigator described to me once as the triple S accident. The stall, spin, splat. Uh, pretty crude way of describing it, but certainly when we looked at the GA accident rate uh, and those loss of controls, they invariably had some form of stall uh, followed by either an order rotation or spin um, before impacting the ground. So if there was any silver lining in 2009, it was an international refocus on pilot training. The problem we thought we'd solved. Um, ICAO, of course, um, changed their order of priority in terms of the, the focus. Um, we know that whilst loss of control in flight is not the most common type of accident, generally because it's high energy impact, uh, it causes the greatest number of fatalities, and I think we heard some stats on that again today. Um, so, lots of work being done around the world, uh, and of course the IPTC, um, which uh, the Royal Aeronautical Society, ICAO, IATA, IFALPA are a part of, um, is, is helping to coordinate that. Now let's uh, have a little irony and let's wind the clock back even further. 107 years ago, the first aviation fatality, or heavier than air aviation fatality, was a loss of control in flight. You probably know the story. Uh, this was uh, an army demonstration flight, 1908. Uh, Lieutenant, or should I say Lieutenant, um, Thomas Selfridge uh, was a passenger. Um, Orville Wright was conducting a demonstration flight for the US War Department trying to sell their Type A um, flyer. Uh, a propeller broke. Orville lost control. The aircraft crashed. He was seriously injured. Um, unfortunately, Lieutenant, Lieutenant Selfridge um, was, was killed. So we know that aviation is ultra-safe. Uh, it's been made safe for a whole range of reasons. Mechanical problems are very, feature very rarely now um, in our aviation statistics. Uh, we've engineered those sorts of problems out. Uh, the HMI, the Human Machine Interface, um, has been further enhanced and automation has solved a lot of that problem, but of course it's created the safety paradox, hasn't it? Automation has made things incredibly safe and yet these issues that we're seeing are attributed in part to automation, that out-of-mode uh, loss of awareness issue. So I think um, for us, uh, what we've learned is that some of the old maxims still hold true. Newton's law of gravity that he set out in his Principia in uh, 1687 is still valid. Airmanship is not a dirty word. Stalling is an angle of attack problem, not an airspeed problem. Power plus attitude equals performance. And aviate, navigate, communicate is still a pretty good set of priorities. What is that telling us? Let's go back to basics. A back to basics approach is important. So in 2006, we had a pilot shortage in Australia. 
our carriers were parking aeroplanes against the fence because they could not, could not recruit enough pilots. Our carriers were going to places like, and I kid you not, and, and I say this with no disrespect, but they were going um, to places like Uzbekistan in trying to recruit sufficient pilots um, to come into Australia. The government enacted a special visa um, to permit pilots um, to get a priority for a work visa. In 2006, we received a call from the chief pilot of one of our major regional carriers who was doing a, a round Australia recruitment exercise. And he was in the Northern Territory. And he was so concerned about the standard of a pilot who had flown in to his interview, a pilot who was employed, commercial pilot, instrument rated, a flying charter. Uh, he was so concerned about his standard, his lack of knowledge, that he phoned us and said, um, I'm really worried about blogs, perhaps you need to look at his licence. Now, to get that sort of direct feedback from a chief pilot uh, was uh, a real clarion call to us as a regulator that maybe we needed to do something. We had been receiving feedback for a significant period from our operators at, at all levels, um, our primary through to tertiary carriers, to say that the pilot standards just aren't quite what they used to be. So, what could we do about it? Well, as a regulator, we have got some levers that we can pull. A bit like the old signalman. Um, and for those younger people in the room, uh, that's how they used to control the trains. Uh, they would pull that lever and the points would change and a signal would drop and the train would go in a different direction. Yep. So as a regulator, we do have a number of levers that we can pull. We're not the only ones that have levers. There are other players in this game. But we must certainly be aware of the law of unintended consequences. Um, English sociologist Robert Merton um, set this law out in 1936. And it states that an intervention in a complex system always creates unanticipated and often undesirable outcomes. And it can create a perverse effect, contrary to what was intended, um, such as when a policy has a perverse incentive that causes actions opposite to what was originally intended. So the, we used to be called the Civil Aviation Authority. We've had, I think, I'm not sure how many name changes we're up to um, at the moment, but uh, we used to be called the CAA. And they delegated a lot of these functions to industry with all good intention. And the intention was, these are the experts. They know better than us how to do training and how to do pilot testing. Perfectly reasonable. Of course, what we then did was actually have almost nothing to do with it after that. A bit of a set and forget. Uh, so, a bit of unintended consequence. So we needed to consider very carefully what we were going to do uh, to make sure that we didn't introduce any unintended consequences, particularly in the aviation context because we know that the cause and effect chain can sometimes be five to seven years downstream before we'll see the effect of something that we might have caused over here. 
So what did we do? Well, our view is that the torchbearers, the holders of standards at all levels in our aviation system, are these two cadres. And so we decided that we would get best bang for our buck if we focus there. Remember, in the GA sector, you know, the issue around loss of control. So we could have gone in and we could have done some work with private pilots and we could have done some work with commercial pilots, uh, but they're transitory in nature, whereas if we take the top-down approach, we'll start to spread um, what we hoped would be the benefit. So some statistics just for some context. We have 4,311 holders of a flight instructor rating with a further 541 airline instructors. We have a total of 341 GA flight examiners and a further 626 airline examiners. What does that mean? That fills about 10 and a half A380s. Okay, so they're the groups that we focused on. Um, we needed to go on a back to basics approach. So what we did was we decided that we would get back into the game of flight testing initial issue instructors. When I did my instructor rating, we had a CAA examiner of airmen I fly up to Coffs Harbour for the day and uh, put me through my paces. And having the regulator come does a couple of things. It sharpens the focus of the training provider to ensure that the entire syllabus is covered. And as the applicant, the candidate, it sharpened my focus in preparation uh, because I knew that there was, you know, know that the, uh, that the examiner had absolutely no commercial pressure. Didn't care about my story, didn't care if I had a job that I needed to get this rating for to start the next day. Uh, he didn't have any of those pressures on him. So what did we do? We, we employed a specialist group of examiners back into the authority and we started in June 2008 conducting flight tests. By October 2008, we had gained sufficient data um, to have reliable statistics. And this is what we saw. So by October 2008, our fail rate of CASA-conducted initial issue instructor ratings was 57%, a figure not dissimilar to some of the figures I heard in today's presentations. Uh, in the height of our program, we were doing 80% of instructor issue flight tests. Uh, we expected, on the basis of the feedback we'd received from industry, that we would see some pretty unusual or interesting things. We hadn't realised just how poor uh, it, the, the situation was. But there's a good news story here that I think you'll see with this graph. And that is that the approach we took was not a big stick approach, although we could have. It was working with our flying training providers, our instructor schools, to say, OK, guys, we've, we've, we have a problem. Houston, we have a problem. Uh, let's work together to fix it. And they did. They stepped up to the challenge. You see, they weren't deliberately setting out to turn out a bad product. That wasn't in their best interest. So what do we put this down to? Well, you may have heard of Professor Diana Vaughan, um, a sociologist, American sociologist. 
Um, she did in 1996. Uh, she released her The Challenger Launch Decision, Risky Technology, Culture and Deviance at NASA. And she raised the concept of normalisation of deviance. And that talks about that over time, through repetition and socialisation, incorrect or amoral actions become accepted as the new norm. And the drift away from the original accepted and correct practice increases with little or no recognition. And if you can remember your basics, you know the one in 60 rule for, for your NAVs? I don't know if you use one in 60 here. Uh, we, we do in Australia for, for basic NAV, for DR. Uh, you'll know that the further you travel, the further you are off track. So we needed to do a course correction. We needed to get ourselves back on track as a regulator because we were culpable in this as well. We'd taken a hands-off, set-and-forget approach, which wasn't appropriate. In eight months, we saw significant improvements so that the fail rate reduced to 34%. And I can tell you that today the pass rate is now 76% for initial issue instructors. Not perfect, but a significant improvement with room for more. It shows that the approach that we and industry took is on the right approach. So we've introduced uh, 12 months ago our Part 61, our new pilot licensing regulations. And we have a philosophy that is our one over one over one. Uh, and this tells us that a flight examiner, or in order to be a flight examiner, you must first be able to teach something, and to be able to teach something, you obviously must be able to do it yourself. So the one over one over one principle. It might, make, uh, might seem to be particularly simple. Let me come now to competency-based training. We introduced competency-based training into the pilot licensing system in 1999. Why? Because the Australian Federal Government introduced competency-based training for all vocational education and training activities or qualifications in the Commonwealth. That's any qualification you want to get must be through an approved CBT program. Aviation happened to be the last sector to introduce it. Um, initially, we only had it for our PPL and CPL syllabus, but as of a year ago, we now have competency-based training for every licence, rating and endorsement, and it's available in our Manual of Standards, which you can see on our website. But let me just talk about what competency means in the VET or vocational education context. It's defined as the ability to perform a task to the standard expected in the workplace. It comprises of three domains, knowledge, skills and attitudes. And within the skills and attitudes domain, there is a further um, two sub-elements of underpinning knowledge and a range of variables. Uh, competencies are set out in three levels. A unit, which describes the function or the task. Um, elements that make up the unit and then the performance criteria that the applicant or the trainee must meet to be assessed as competent. So, let me um, move to an example of some instructor competencies. So these are competencies for the instructor rating. So we have uh, our aeronautical knowledge standards, we have our practical flight standards, and we have three units of competency there. 
and in the attitudes we have some common standards that um, run across, so NTS is non-technical skills. And I'll just explore this. So the instructor rating common aeronautical knowledge standards covers those particular items. And that's what will be examined in the theory examination. Pretty standard stuff. Uh, I'll pick just FIR3, uh, that unit of competency, uh, which is called conduct flight training. It then has these elements, and under each of those elements are the performance criteria that an instructor has to teach and that an examiner has to assess. Again, what you'd expect to see for an instructor to be deemed competent. And let me just show you um, one of the NTS units. That's NTS 1. This is a common unit across every one of our licences, ratings and endorsements. One of the rules of competency-based training is contextualisation. So when NTS1 and NTS2, and I should say that NTS2 is threat and error management, if, you, if you're interested, it's managing threats, managing errors, and managing undesired aircraft states, so the three elements. Um, what would be covered at, at uh, PPL level will obviously be contextually different at instructor level. But it's the same um, set of <coughs> units and elements. So let me now um, finish with just a quick case study of what we did in Australia with regulating for flight simulators. In 2013, we mandated the use of flight simulators for certain training and testing activities. Now, simulators aren't new technology. <laughs> Not quite sure what the fidelity of this device would have been, Mark, but um, it probably didn't even have a QTG, I suspect. So today, of course, fidelity has significantly improved. We had a um, serious incident with uh, Brasilia uh, going on a mine fly-in, fly-out. So um, for Australia, our resources sector has been booming. It's not quite so booming at the moment, uh, but uh, you know, huge industry flying miners from, say, Perth to out to one of the mines. Um, I was based in Perth. My wife was a um, training and checking captain with one of the major carriers that did a lot of fly-in, fly-out um, uh, contract work for the mines. Uh, Brasilia uh, was on the way into one of these mine sites. Um, they suffered a, a problem. They went around. It was mishandled uh, by both the first officer and the captain, and it came within... Um, well, I can't remember whether it was 20 feet or 50 feet of impact uh, before they were able to recover it uh, and, and then land successfully. That caught both the ATSB and our attention significantly because it was full of miners um, down the back. And uh, the ATSB put forward a recommendation that maybe uh, they, they, one of the causal factors was um, pilot competency, pilot training, and they suggested we should look at simulator, uh, the better use of simulators. So we started the uh, standard uh, rule writing process of industry consultation. And just as we were doing that industry consultation, this event occurred. Ironically, it was another Brasilia. This one uh, was out of uh, Darwin, departure off runway 29. It was a proficiency check. Two captains, 
One of the captains had just returned from leave, so he needed his IPC. We know that engine failure after takeoff is one of the checklist, the McDonald's uh, menu lists that uh, a pilot has to be able to demonstrate. So the check pilot retarded the left power lever to flight idle, simulating the engine failure, but of course also um, simulating, uh, which he didn't realise, I suspect, the failure of propeller auto feather. So we've got a disking propeller. Uh, indicated airspeed decreased the aircraft bank towards the inoperative engine. The aircraft exited controlled flight, impacted uh, the ground and was consumed by post-impact fire. These were not inexperienced people. The check and training captain had um, uh, just under 6,000 hours total, of which th over 3,000 was on the BRAS. The pilot under check was even more experienced, 8,200 hours, uh, nearly 4,000 on the Brasilia. These were highly experienced pilots conducting a routine proficiency check ride. But of course in an aircraft we don't have the luxury of flight freeze, a reset or reposition button. So that certainly provided impetus as we were going through the NPRM and we had in probably what is a first for Australia, uh, consensus. Um, for our regulatory reform of mandating the use of simulators. So how does it work? Okay, so for initial type ratings, this is how it works. If we have an aircraft with greater than nine certificated passenger seating, doesn't matter how they've configured it, so on the TCDS, uh, what, what it's certificated for, and there is a simulator, and that simulator happens to be located in Australia, the type rating must be done in the sim. Uh, an aircraft with greater than 19 certificated passenger seating or above 86, 18 kilos, if there is a simulator, wherever that simulator is in the world, the type rating must be done in the sim, not the aircraft. Uh, we've taken it then a step further which is the mandatory use of simulators for recurrent training, but only for non-normals, okay? They don't have to do the entire check um, in the sim. So again, aircraft with less than nine passenger certificated seating, if there's a sim and it's in Australia, they have to do that component at least. Um, and uh, above 19, it uh, doesn't matter where in the world the simulator is, um, they have to do their check ride or their recurrent training in that. Now, of course, as a regulator, we've got to be very careful <clears throat> that we strike that right balance between protection and production. Now, you can imagine we've not yet received a complaint from a pilot that's had to travel to places like Miami or Dubai um, to do their recurrent. But for operators, it comes at an absolute direct cost, a direct cost. Uh, of training. What's harder to measure, of course, is, is the safety benefit, the safety outcome. What is the cost of an accident? Well, we can put prices on the whole loss, uh, but what value do we place on, on human life, the suffering of those left behind? Uh, there is, of course, that very good saying that if you think safety is expensive, try having an accident. And in Australia's, uh, in our history, uh, where, we are, where we do see the, the, um, our highest risk sector, which is our you know, low capacity RPT sector, 
Uh, that's the metros and the Beach 1900s and the King Air 350 type group. That's where we um, suffer fatalities. Every airline that has had a fatality, a fatal accident in that sector has gone broke. Loss of public confidence, of course. So, whilst we're cognisant of the costs um, to some operators, this is a case where both we and industry believe that we've struck that right balance between protection and production. And on that note, uh, let me finish the 2015 Captain Ray Jones Memorial Lecture. Uh, let me say once again what an honour it's been uh, uh, to be here uh, with the Royal Aeronautical Society and to give this address. And I hope that I've been able to give you a sense uh, of linking in with the theme of today's conference about the need for um, good instructor standards and just what we've done about it, as well as giving a bit of a flavour um, in honour of um, Captain Jones in terms of what we've done with simulators. Thank you. From across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading. Visit www.aerosociety.com to download more from this series and other multimedia content from the Royal Aeronautical Society. If you enjoyed this content, please consider showing your support for the Society. Share a link to this presentation by email or on your favourite social networks. If you have an interest in aerospace, consider the professional and personal benefits of membership. Visit www.aerosociety.com. This content is provided subject to our website and digital media terms of use. Please visit www.aerosociety.com for more information.